I want to begin tonight by explaining the difference between Wednesday night and Sunday morning. Okay, Sunday morning is inspiration first, education second. Wednesday night is education first and inspiration second. Does everybody understand that? Pastor Ronnie has his preacher, pastor evangelist hat on Sunday morning. He's going to have his teacher, student, seminarian hat on on Wednesdays, okay? That doesn't mean the Holy Ghost won't bring some inspiration. But in order for me to teach this book the way it ought to be taught, I've got to be zoned into my teaching gift because here's what I do not want to do. I do not want to make this book say something it doesn't. I do not want to bring confusion. If there's one book you should never expound on or create your own reality from, it's this book. Far too many preachers in the past have stretched the meanings in this book, predicted the return of Jesus Christ incorrectly, and caused much damage to the kingdom of God. So I want to preach this the way it ought to be preached. I want to give you what the Bible says and let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. I want to begin tonight by sharing with you the commentaries I've used in my field of study. Not only did I take this course, which is actually broken up into three courses uh, for my master's in seminary many years ago now, uh, I used a number of resources. The first thing I used, you might have heard of this, it's called the Bible. Um, That is the first thing I used as well as the Greek New Testament. And if that's all I use, that should be enough. But I want to list some other books for you tonight because I believe you give credit where credit's due. And too many preachers rip things off as their own these days and they don't give the credit. So I want to give you some books that the Lord has used to help me uh, in my study of Revelation. The first one uh, is William Barclay. And I shouldn't tell you this because he was a theologian from Great Britain in the 1800s and no pastor I know uses his stuff, but I do. And I love it. Now that I've told you that, I've let you know my secrets. So you'll know where I get some of my cool stuff. But William Barclay and his, his legacy is, is, is everlasting. And he's a genius and his commentaries are the best. If you want to go deeper in your walk with Christ, uh, I would encourage you to read William Barclay. He's phenomenal. Also, Revelation Expounded is the name of the next book by Finus Dake. And if you were raised Church of God, you know who Finus Dake is. And that book has been a great blessing to me in my study as well. Also, listening to my dad's past sermons always is a blessing. John R. Rice, great independent Baptist mind. Uh, I've read his books on this topic. Uh, The book I've used the most is probably Interpreting Revelation by Merrill C. Tenney, who is a Ph.D., Um, graduated from Wheaton College, which actually recruited my son to play football there. I was hoping he'd go, but he didn't go there. He chose another place. But uh, that book was written in 1957. Um, So uh, I I have some old commentaries. but But the greatest gift that was given to me as I began to study this was I got a a copy of Dr. Robert Jeffers' book from First Baptist Dallas called The Final Conquest with a long note written to me. And I cherish that book. And I have used quite a bit of it. It, To me, in the last 50 years, it's the greatest book on it. And I know you might think because Dr. Jeffers wrote it, it's a political book. It has nothing whatsoever about politics. It's just solid word of God. And it's a phenomenal read. And I encourage you to check some of those out uh, in the future. They will be a great blessing to you. 
So why do most people study the book of Revelation? Three reasons. The first one is mysticism, which I've preached to you about before. They want to go to some spooky other world with God. Okay. The second reason is sensationalism. People want to be able to predict things. Uh, the third reason is intellectualism, which people just want to further their education. Nothing wrong with that one. But the real reason we ought to be studying this book is hunger. We want to know Jesus in a more intimate way. We want to understand what John knew on the island of Patmos. We want to know what it's like to get caught up with God to the degree that he might give us a dream or a vision. It's important that we have our eyes on Jesus when we begin to open this book. We should not study this book to just simply try to predict events or understand about the return of Jesus and the timeline of that, but more so we can give hope to other people to let them know that if they accept this Christ, they win and that their destiny is not a six foot hole in the ground. They have a future in him. The word revelation in the Greek is apocalypsis, which we get our word apocalypse from that word. This word means to remove the covering or unveil a mystery. This book is about Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the title of this series, Yesterday, Today, and Forever, because I believe those three words identify the person, the power, and the purpose of Jesus Christ. The author, I've already shared that with you, is John the Apostle, the Apostle, who I believe is the one whom Jesus loved, who also wrote First, Second, and Third John, who Jesus said, take care of my mother when he was on the cross, the one Jesus loved. The situation was that the Emperor Nero, and if you were in my seven churches revelation class um, a month or two ago, then you understand that the Emperor Nero was killing Christians and certainly prophets of that day, but there was a transfer of power, his reign ended, and then a new emperor, Domitian, took over, and he was a little bit more lenient with Christian people, so instead of murdering them, he would just exile the ones who, he, who posed a threat. So John was exiled to the island of Patmos because he refused to worship the emperor. The only person he was gonna worship is Jesus Christ. There will come a day in the United States of America, and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks, where everything is going to be moved towards a one world government. This is called globalism. This is not a political statement. This is just simply a fact. You're gonna have conservatives and Democrats on both sides wanting to move towards this one world government. It's in the Bible, it's in the book of Revelation. It's going to seem like a thing of unity and a thing of peace, but it's a thing of terror. It's gonna tear this world apart, but it's okay because those things have to happen so that Jesus can come back on the scene. That is why I will stand up for righteousness and I will stand up for my political views occasionally, especially when it comes to the unborn. But I do not rant and rave about it all the time because certain things have to happen for my savior to come on the scene. And I am not in fear of when that day comes. In fact, I look forward to it when he puts everything in its rightful order and its rightful place. So some quick background as we get rolling on the seven churches of Revelation. For those of you who have not been able to listen to those teachings on the app, I encourage you if you get bored or if you just want to take a good nap. No, I'm just kidding. Go to the app, listen to those teachings on the seven churches of Revelation. A little bit more practical in the class we did recently. We, we really applied it to the church of today, so I think uh, it won't put you to sleep right away. But the first one's Ephesus. They lost their first love. They abandoned Christ's teachings 
and they were given hope if they would repent. The next one was Smyrna, the faithful church, Pergamum, which we know Hitler was inspired by this particular church in Asia Minor to the degree he rebuilt this ungodly temple, Pergamus, and he put it there in Berlin, and it's in a museum today. Sick stuff. It's funny how the devil repeats history year after year after year, but that's what happened. In Pergamum, we talked about the hidden manna, demonic activities, the white stone. If you're in the class, Miss Ada brought us all white stones and we gave that to let people know they'd been pardoned and they'd been made pure and that we were in covenant together as believers. We'll go through what all these things mean, but white means a clean slate. It means purity. And so Pergamum was the church of compromise engaged in demonic activities. Thyatira was the wealthy but foolish church following a false prophet. Sardis, the spiritually dead church. And the Bible says if they would repent, they would be dressed in white, which again represents purity. The church at Philadelphia, the enduring church that Jesus was proud of. How would you like to be a, the church that Jesus is proud of? I hope he's proud of Abba's house, amen? God promises to make the churches he's proud of pillars, not only in their community, but in the kingdom of God, pillars that will make an everlasting difference. And then finally, Laodicea, and you've heard this, the lukewarm church that made God want to vomit them out of his mouth. Jesus said, listen, I'd rather you be cold if you're not gonna be hot, because if you're right in the middle, you make me want to vomit. So we are not to be in the middle. But their prosperity there in Laodicea had taken the place of God's presence, of God's presence. So the first purpose of this book was to the seven churches of Revelation there in Asia Minor, okay? And then we have a number of other sevens and signs and symbols that I want to give to you tonight. We're gonna go into these deeper in the coming weeks, but let's just talk about what some of these things mean. The first one I'm really gonna blow your mind with is my view on the rapture, which I'm about to get into. I am what you call a dispensational premillennialist. What does that mean? It's real simple. I believe that Jesus loves his people. He loves his church. He's coming back. Those of us, the remnant that really know God. Now, I believe there's some saved folks that ain't gonna be in this group. That will mess with your theology, and that's, that's fine. We'll mess with it. These are people that are really sold out for God, that really love God, that he knows when he calls their name, they hear him. When they call his name, he answers. I'm talking about the remnant. These people will be raptured. Then comes the tribulation for seven years. Then Jesus comes back. He reigns from Jerusalem, Israel. His millennial kingdom is established. Those of us who are alive and who've been raptured, we reign with him and we have a role and responsibility for a thousand years. Satan is ultimately defeated at the end of that tribulation. We reign with him and ultimately forevermore with Jesus Christ. That's what I believe. Now, they're amillennialists. They're historic premillennialists. And all of those are similar, and I respect all of those views. One of, the only difference in one of them is that they believe Jesus comes to rapture, then he goes back, then later he comes again. They believe there's, there's two appearances instead of one. Here's what I would say to that. Who cares as long as he's coming back, amen? 
So we can all have our views on that, but that's what I believe the Bible teaches. That's what I have studied. That's what the people that I respect the most with the minds I respect the most from seminary on, that is what I believe based on scripture. I'll prove it to you in just a moment. Revelation is a book of signs and symbols. So you're gonna hear a lot of mystical stuff. First thing you need to understand is many times John will say something like, I saw this image and it looked like or it was like this. That doesn't necessarily mean it was that, right? It means it, that's what he had to go on at the time. That's all he had to draw his assumptions and conclusions from. So it's not necessarily that we're to take every vision he has completely literal. Some we can, some we can't. The seven stars, first of all, the seven stars represent the angels of the church the angels of the church. The other thing you'll hear are the seven lampstands. Those represent the seven churches of Asia Minor, who the first three chapters of this book were written to and who he references throughout the entire scroll. Seven lamps of fire represent seven spirits. I believe represents the main seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit, amen? And I'll get into that, that excites me. I think it'll excite you. The bowls of incense represent the prayers of the saints. The great dragon, y'all know who this is, Satan. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven mountains. The 10 horns of the beast represent the 10 kings representing the nations that will be relevant during the end times. The other things that you will hear often, you'll, you'll hear him refer to the waters, the waters, the waters. What does that mean in Revelation? People, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Let me say that again. People, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Then you're gonna to hear to him refer to the woman, the woman that has to do with the great city, the great city. He references in this scroll, 20 Old Testament books, and there are other things that you're gonna learn about. The tree of life, hidden manna, rod of iron, morning star, key of David, which you've heard me preach on before, living creatures, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the great angel, first beast, second beast, and others, the white stone, the pillar, the elders, the seals, the two witnesses, the woman clothed with sun, the wine press, the lake of fire, the great white throne, and the city of God. So quite a bit to unveil the next 18 weeks, but those are what they mean. So when you hear these things in the scriptures, understand what they are and what they represent, and you won't be as confused as much, at least at the beginning, amen? In Revelation chapter one, we looked at the things which we have seen, the past visions of Jesus Christ. In chapters two and three, it's about the seven churches of Revelation. Now we shift from earth to heaven, from warfare to worship. The tribulation is about to begin. The rapture is at hand. What does the word rapture mean in the Bible? Some people will say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's actually the Greek word harpozo, and it means to be caught up. So yes, in the translation from Latin to English, they translated it rapture, but it means to be 
caught up, okay? Revelation chapter four. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps. That's why I told you what they mean. Seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second one was like, notice that word there, was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, <clears throat> holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. This is powerful if you think about it. And they say this, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power for you created all things and by your will, they were created and have their being. So, whenever you see something in scripture repeated three times in a worship or a hymn, that means that the word and the spirit is trying to emphasize what God is saying or an attribute of God. So I told Samantha recently, I said, you know, a lot of the new worship is repetitive and the biggest knock on new worship is that it's repetitive. Like you say the same phrase over and over. Well, that didn't start recently. That goes all the way back to the time of John on the island of Patmos. Whenever you wanted to get something spiritually into the hearts of someone, you repeat it and you repeat it and you repeat it. And we have more people diagnosed with learning disabilities and ADHD nowadays. Some people like me, they need to hear it over and over till their spirit resonates with it. So holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So the first thing I want to make clear to you tonight is the rapture of the church. For that, we're gonna go to 1 Thessalonians chapter four. I told you what I believed, the, the brief timeline of events in which I believe they happened. But this is what it says, and this is one of the reasons I believe in the rapture, pre-trib rapture. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, 
we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Here are some reasons why I believe in a pre-trib rapture. First of all, everything in the Old Testament points to the New Testament. Noah was saved from the flood and the animals and his family, right? So it's in God's nature to save the righteous. Lot was saved from judgment at Sodom and Gomorrah. That is who God is. If he can find one righteous, if he can preserve mankind, that's what he will do. And I don't believe God beats his children. I just don't. He chastens us, he disciplines us, but I do not believe he would allow his remnant, his transformed children to go through that tribulation period spoken of in Daniel. This is what 2 Peter chapter 2 says, beginning with verse 5. It says, And he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver, everybody say, that's me. Deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. In other words, this is saying God knows how to rapture his people out of judgment and preserve that judgment for the people who have earned it and who have denied him. The other reason I believe this is in Revelation chapter six, which we'll get to in two weeks, from chapter six all the way to 18, you don't hear anything about the church. First three chapters is church, 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 church. Then there's nothing when we're speaking of the tribulation and the seals and the bowls of wrath and all of these things happening. The church is not present in chapter 16 all the way to verse 18 until it has been fully restored. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and, and chapter 5, it says that God has not destined his church, his true church, his remnant for wrath. Where I believe this can be debated is who are his true children? What is God's true church? I believe that's where the debate lies. Not if God loves his children, not if God is going to protect his children, it's who really is his church? Who really are his children? That's the key to this. And so I don't say this to put fear in you, I'm just trying to lead you into intimacy with Christ. I want you to be close to Jesus. I want you to hear his voice. I want you to understand what he says. I'm not talking about perfect behavior. I'm talking about a heart submitted and committed to Jesus. Knowing him, him knowing you being faithful, loving the things that he loves. Revelation chapter three, verse 10, just to back up a little bit. Since you have kept my command, to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Praise God. 
So why must there be a tribulation? You'll run into this all the time with atheists and with people who don't believe in God. You know, they look at everything from a humanistic perspective. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why do kids get cancer? Why did I lose the person I love? Why do people go through such horrific things on this earth that aren't fair? Listen, because God doesn't live in this dimension only. He is eternal. Everything he does or allows to happen, all is connected to an eternal purpose and perspective. So while this is the only perspective we can gather, unless we're in a Holy Spirit trance, we live in this dimension. So all we know is what we see, what we lost, our loved ones dying, all we see is this. But God lives in all the dimensions. He is omnipresent. He is above all, so he has an eternal perspective. And so death to him means very little because to be absent from bodies, to be present with the Lord. Amen? So he's gaining something while our humanistic bodies and perspectives, we're losing something we feel like. But spiritually, we're gaining something too. And God understands it. So why? Must there be a tribulation? Well, let me tell you, first and foremost, for Israel, for the Jews, they are the apple of his eye. Because of God's mercy, number one, according to Daniel chapter nine, and I'll give you the 490, and we'll, we'll do all that multiplication in a few weeks, and I'll give you charts. Math's my worst subject. Emily, you can come clean that up one night or something, but I'll give you all the math problems and let you deal with that. But the bottom line is, Daniel chapter nine says God will give Israel one last chance to respond and recognize. That's why it's important for us as evangelicals and Americans to support the nation of Israel. You say, well, Pastor Ronnie, some Jews don't believe in Christ. Not yet, but they will. They're gonna get their chance. They're gonna get their chance. And Gentiles that, have, that are still left during the tribulation will have an opportunity to come to Christ. Now, here's how God's gonna know if they're sincere or not, because I will teach you this in three weeks. But every Gentile that converts during the tribulation will give their life for it. They'll die for believing in Christ. So God's gonna know pretty quick who's sincere and who's not when that time comes. So the first reason there must be a tribulation, period, is God's mercy. To give people yet another chance, another opportunity for his grace. The next is God's wrath. Yes, because God will use that time for those who've been enemies of Christ, enemies of his church, enemies of the gospel. God will pour his wrath out on those. Number two, the revelation John witnessed. He says, after I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and before me was a throne in heaven. He's describing an invisible God. Colossians says he is the image, Jesus, of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's describing flashes of light, colors, gemstones, the new Jerusalem where we will reign and where he will govern from. He mentions diamonds, 
Diamonds in this scroll represent holiness and purity, also justice and wrath. He mentions an emerald rainbow. The color emerald represents mercy. So it, you see it right before the tribulations poured out in the next chapter. This is the beginning of judgments in chapters four and five. Right before the tribulation, you see an opportunity for mercy. Isn't God good? He didn't come to cast us into hell. He doesn't hate us. He loves us. And right now, we're in what's called the dispensation of grace. God is being so kind to us right now. And he's going to continue to give us opportunities to come to know him because he really loves us. He really loves you. Number three, the worship John experienced. Now, all you worship leaders are going to love this. He says, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white, had crowns of gold. And then he talks about the flashes of lightning and the seven lamps were blazing, the seven spirits of God. So you got the churches represented, the Holy Spirit of God. The sounds are beautiful. The colors are beautiful. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and back. Everybody say weird. It's okay to say weird. It's just a little weird. I mean, in the word of God, you're reading all this stuff that sort of makes sense and then you get into this. It's a little weird. The first creature was like a lion. We've heard something about lions if y'all have been around the last week or two, right? Let me say that again for those asleep. The first living creature was like a lion. The second one was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. A flying eagle. He described three groups of beings worshiping God. Let me try to unfold some of this for you quickly. 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns. In the priesthood, King David, priesthood, Priests were broken up into groups of 24 to avoid chaos and disorder, and they would rotate shifts, okay? So this isn't new. This has to do with the tabernacle of David, which at the end times, the Bible says that that will be restored. So this is beginning to look like David's tabernacle. So the number 24 relates to something that has already been. Remember, the same yesterday, today, and forever. They were not angels, these elders, because it says here they obtained salvation. The difference between you and an angel is angels don't get saved. You get saved. You have something that angels don't. Their job is to protect and carry out the mission, protect you, but you have access to God and you have the spirit living on the inside of you. The elders represent all who have been redeemed. I believe it's the 12 tribes of Judah, the 12 apostles. I believe it represents both Jewish people of faith and Gentile people of faith coming together, the evangelical, the Gentile church, as well as the nation of Israel. They're all wearing their crowns, the victor's crowns, dressed in white. Why are they dressed in white? Because according to the word of God, they've already been judged at the bema seat for their sins. So they've already went through that process. They've been made pure. They represent the kingdom and they are there in spirit. Next, the seven spirits of God. The number seven means what? Complete, right? It's not just what you win in Vegas, okay? The number seven means complete. It means perfection. The Holy Spirit as a part of the Godhead is in the midst of this worship experience John is describing. Understand this, we don't want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit to make you goofy or cult-like. We're trying to prepare you for the new Jerusalem. 
We're trying to prepare you for heaven. We want you to understand what is happening when the Spirit is on the scene and the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit are in full operation. More on that next week. Four living creatures. These are mentioned throughout the book of Revelation, as well as what appeared to be what was like a sea of glass. What do we know about these creatures? Some say the attributes of God, most say angels from Isaiah 6, cherubim and seraphim. Here's what we know about these creatures. They are always surrounding the throne of God and close to the Lamb. They have six wings and full of eyes. What does that mean? The wings mean they carry. The eyes mean they know. Spirit, truth, and strength. We know they love to worship God. They invited John to observe wrath in at the breaking of the first four seals, which we'll get into next week. They wanted John to observe the wrath being poured out. So they love to worship God. They're reverent to God. They know, they carry, they have strength. They handed the bowls of the wrath to the seven angels who poured out the wrath. So they're not only a part of God's goodness, they're a part of his wrath. They're his agents of worship, but they're also his agents of wrath. Next, there's a sound from heaven. There are 20 songs, hymns, if you must, sounds sung by various groups in this text. The first two are right here in Revelation 4, forming first a sound of creation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The next thing that is released is not only a sound of creation, a sound of praise. This ought to be the roadmap for every worship service. Can I just a minute? And then we'll, we'll land this plane. Every worship service, there ought to be a sound of creation, something creative release that gives honor to the creator. Next, a sound of praise, which is a sound of thanksgiving. These beasts, these elders, these spirits, they sang without stopping. The next is a sound of eternity, a sound or a song that releases into the atmosphere what God has promised he would do to us, through us, and for us. Again, if something is repeated three times, it means it was extremely important. Three, 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus got up after three days. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Three people at the transfiguration. Three is important. Not only the sound of praise, sound of eternity, the sound of unity. The 24 elders, check this out. The angels are praising God. Creation is praising God in this. And humanity, human beings join in. That's who the elders represent. We lay our crowns at his feet as a sign of adoration. The athletes in John's day in Roman culture at the Olympic Games or the Ithmian Games, when the emperor would come in, they would lay their crowns at the feet of the emperor. So when John's having this vision, he's seeing God's servants laying their crowns at the feet of Jesus. A.W. Tozer said that worship is the missing jewel of the church. So I close here. If God is for us, who can be against us? And if he's called us to worship, we need to worship. We need to be willing to release 
a sound of creation, a sound of praise, a sound of unity, a sound of eternity, we must know that Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, the lamb that sits on the throne, that can appear as a lion, died for our sins, left us with the Holy Spirit, and when he told them, listen, I'm not leaving you orphans, I'm coming back. He's not coming back as a little baby in a manger. He's coming back to pour wrath out on those who oppose his children and to rescue his church, amen? And I think we ought to just give him praise for that, amen? Stand on your feet, hallelujah. Only two minutes past tonight. Raise your hands up, let me close this. I wanna have, have you pray for my children, if you would. And, and my senior adults, you probably wanna keep your distance from me tonight. I'm not sick, I don't have any symptoms, but my kids are, okay? And I, don't, I would hate to get anybody sick if you're comfortable coming around me, I'm comfortable with it, but I'm giving you a warning. I might keep my distance from me tonight if I was you, okay? Pray for me. I'll be uh, out of the state this Sunday. I'll be at uh, Indian Rocks Baptist Church. Kind of a cool thing. Pastor Ken, like many moons ago, was on staff there. So I'm looking forward to going there and uh, being with them and having a few days with a friend of mine, powerful friend, and it's gonna be, gonna be fun. And so uh, Ron Jones is gonna be bringing the word here. Some of you are gonna go and support dad and I appreciate you doing that. I hear he'll need the prayer covering and, and we need unity in our city. So thank you for being willing to do that. Thank you for being awesome. What a great crowd tonight for first night. I'm amazed, y'all are awesome. And thank all of you for watching. Heavenly Father, thank you for a wonderful church. Thank you for the privilege it is to praise you. Lord, I pray that people learned something, they felt something, and they leave here challenged to do something, to worship you on a day-to-day -day basis. Lord, as we unfold this and unveil this the next 17 weeks after tonight, Lord, be with us. May your spirit be made manifest. May you challenge, Lord, not only your people, but those connected to your people in this season. Protect everyone from illness as they go. Lord, heal the sick, comfort the afflicted, and love the sinner through us every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good evening.